Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue, the show that tells you all the ins and outs of working in forensics. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. This week, we watched Crossing Jordan, Season 3, Episode 2, titled Slam Dunk. We'll be talking about juries, ballistics, gunpowder, exhumations, I mean, can it get any better than that, and the case of the Eastburn family murders. So let's get into it. So we open to a courtroom where the jury is being shown dash cam footage of a man named Officer Logan being attacked during a traffic stop. The prosecutor says Daryl Ainsworth, the man who attacked the officer, was pulled over and got out of the car because he was trying to keep the officer from seeing the cocaine that was in plain view inside his car. Ainsworth didn't want to go back to prison for a third time, so this was why the prosecutor says that he killed the officer. In the footage, we see Daryl Ainsworth attack Officer Logan and tackle him out of view of the cameras. The prosecutor goes on to say that Ainsworth was found the next day trying to flee and with Officer Logan's blood on the clothes he had been wearing that night. The prosecutor also goes on to say that Ainsworth was convicted of a murder over a decade ago. The conviction was overturned on a technical point and then we pan over to get a view of all the jurors and we see that Jordan... The show's pathologist is among them. We cut to Dr. Macy, who is Jordan's boss, talking to the prosecutor as they leave the courthouse. He's asking when he can have his employee back, and the prosecutor replies that they'll likely have the conviction in less than an hour because all the evidence they have against Ainsworth. Macy questions why Jordan was even selected to be on the jury, and the prosecutor said that by the time they brought her in for jury selection, she had used up all of her peremptory challenges. So this is basically when a lawyer, this like the lawyer's objection to a proposed juror and can be made without giving a reason. You just be like, I don't like your vibes. Get out. Get out. And <laughs> there's like, okay, fine. I won't argue. So she goes on to say that this case is a slam dunk. That even Jordan can't derail. Oh, just and then we cut wait. to just little wait. does she know. <laughs> Hold my beer. Watch me derail this. <laughs> we cut to the jurors deliberating, and they all say guilty without even hesitating, except for Jordan, who is already derailing this entire episode. I mean, she has some good points. She does, and nobody wants to listen to her until the very end. It's, yeah, until finally they do. And because it's her show, she's right. So she hesitates and then says that there's one detail that kind of bothers her. She said the entrance wound in Officer Logan's chest is what's bothering her. According to the prosecution, Officer Logan and Ainsworth slid down an incline, grabbing and punching at each other. Officer Logan managed to hit Ainsworth but couldn't get to his gun in time. But Ainsworth pulled his own gun and fired at Officer Logan from a distance of about 18 inches. Jordan goes on to explain that if this was, in fact, what happened there, there should have been tattooing around the bullet hole, which is like when gunpowder is embedded in the skin, and it's also called stippling. So tattooing or stippling occurs from what is called an intermediate range gunshot wound, which is a range between 6 to 30 inches. So we'll give a green flag here to Jordan for her gunpowder tattooing knowledge because it's pretty accurate. One juror points out that Officer Logan had on a police-issue jacket, but Jordan says it was open in the front. Another juror suggests that maybe they were actually further apart than 18 inches, but Jordan says that the shoe prints found at the scene say that they were 18 inches apart. Another frustrated juror says that 
there is nobody else who could have done it and that there weren't any other shoe prints found at the scene. Jordan says that there were no other bare spots on the incline that would have made shoe impressions, and then she clarifies that she isn't saying Ainsworth didn't do it, she's just acknowledging that there are some anomalies here that she thinks warrant further discussion. She says that if she could take a look at the copy of the autopsy report, it would put her mind at ease. So, this was entered into evidence, so they should be able to ask the judge to see it. Meanwhile, Dr. Macy's out to dinner with the prosecutor, and I guess they're kind of dating, or on a first date or something. Yeah. It seemed like they had a history when they were talking. Like, that's why he was there, was to, like, see her, but also ask about Jordan. So while they're out, she gets a call from her office, and they're obviously asking for the autopsy report for the jury. She thinks it's Jordan who must be asking for the autopsy report, and Macy tries to defend her and says that maybe another juror was curious about it. She also shares that the reason Ainsworth's conviction was overturned the last time is because the sound card from the dashboard cam got misplaced before the first trial. Macy goes back to the office and grabs a file, and then Jordan arrives at the office and says that the jury just broke for the day. They still haven't reached a verdict. Macy asks why Jordan wanted to see the autopsy report for the case, and she says that she can't discuss this case. He asks her if there is really something wrong with the case or if she's just kicking up dust for the hell of it. And she says that if the prosecution is so confident in their evidence, they should have nothing to worry about and that they don't need Macy running interference for them. So he decides to review the autopsy report for himself and he calls in the pathologist that worked on the case, which is Dr. McCain. He tells him that his report contained some ambiguities, putting it nicely, And Macy says that he can't tell which wound is the entrance from the photographs taken at the autopsy. This is why photographs are very important. Photographs are important. Autopsy photographs are so important. People don't always get that, like showing your range, like what photos, where the actual wound on the body is, instead of just taking like an up-close photo of it. You have no idea what you're looking at in comparison to the entire body. Yeah, You need the reference. You need, like, the overall shot and then the close-up. You can't just take the Mm -hmm. close-up. Yeah. Photos are important, everybody. So McCain says it's the one in his chest, and Macy brings up the lack of tattooing. He also says that both wounds are oval-shaped and have red rim abrasions around them, and there's also no torn skin margins in either one, and they both have micro-tears at the edges. So just a little background about the difference between entrance and exit wounds. I'm pretty sure we've talked about this on a past episode or two but definitely but i'll always talk curious right (laughs) so entry wounds show invagination of tissue in the wound so it's like turning it inside out basically and it's also smaller while exit wounds show outward beveling of tissue and exits are generally larger than entrances so mccain says that the shoe prints at the scene show that there were two men that were facing each other he had to have been shot in the chest Macy says he wants a forensic explanation. McCain says that it's hard to tell an entrance from an exit with a small caliber gun, which may or may not be true, depending on, I guess, range. So Macy says that McCain testified twice on this, so he should know which was the entrance. And McCain goes on to say that it wasn't his fault the conviction got overturned the first time. It was the prosecutor's fault for losing the sound card, and Macy should take it up with her. Macy says that he wants to see the body, even after all this time. So we find out that this case was originally from 1994. 
And he says that the body, even after all this time, will tell them more than the original autopsy report. So back to the jury deliberating, Jordan is explaining why the autopsy report has some flaws. She points out that you can't even tell the entrance from the exit wound, and the other jurors seem to have the same reaction, which is, who cares? One juror states all the evidence against Ainsworth already. The officer's blood on his clothes, the missing 32 caliber murder weapon, and most of all, the videotape that shows Ainsworth tackling Officer Logan. Jordan asks where the gun is, and all the jurors groan. She says in the videotape, you see Ainsworth get out of his car in just jeans and a t-shirt and that he had no weapon on him at the time. The other jurors try to argue that he easily could have hidden the gun somewhere, not visible on camera footage, and Jordan says that they can't just ignore the defendant's testimony. The rest of the jurors groan again, and one says that Ainsworth tried to come up with the stupidest excuse. The defendant claimed that he was knocked out when Officer Logan punched him, and he doesn't know what happened after that. He says he just woke up and somebody else had shot Officer Logan. So I was, (laughs) this whole episode with Jordan in the jury room and like all the jury all the other jurors getting mad at her it just like I would be so stressed out if that were me in the jury room and it also made me think of that time I did get jury duty (laughs) I have a very funny story so I didn't get selected for jury duty but there's actually two funny parts to this story the first funny part is when I got summoned the first time I had just gotten COVID for the first time this is back in September and I was down bad like I was not in good shape and On top of that, I also got my period the same day. And like, just when my symptoms were starting to get better, I joked with my fiance, I was like, oh, well, at least it can't get any worse. And that day I got summoned for jury duty. And I was like, I don't know who I pissed off like in the universe that is like taking something out on me right now, but (laughs) this is such bad karma for something. Anyway, day comes, I have to go serve for jury duty. And I walk in, I have my bag and they have to scan my bag and the metal detector x-ray thing. And they scan it, I walk through the metal detector, I'm fine, and I'm waiting for my bag, and I'm waiting for my bag, and it comes through, and the woman, security guard, stops me. She's like, uh, I, I need you to open your bag and take everything out. And I'm like, what? what's going on? And she's like, we saw scissors in your bag. And I'm like, what, scissors? I was like, I don't have scissors in here, what are you talking about? And like the other security guard comes over, and I'm like freaking out. I'm like, I don't have anything in this bag that's dangerous. And so, <laughs> going through my bag, and I pull out bag of I had autopsy tools in my backpack that I forgot about because they were a gift from one of the doctors that we work with had given Jess and I both very nice autopsy tools with our name on them we got scissors forceps and a scalpel handle there was no blade on the scalpel I wasn't that dumb (laughs) and I immediately I like put the bag down of autopsy tools and I like put my hands up when I was about to be arrested I was like I'm so sorry I forgot these were in here they were a gift I work for the coroner's office I had my work badge I showed them I was like I'm so sorry I did I was like they've never been used they're clean I promise and one guy thought it was hilarious there was one guy who thought it was so funny there was another woman who was not amused at all she confiscated my tools <laughs> she was doing her job properly I, she confiscated my tools and the guy who thought it was funny was like hey just come find me like before you leave and i'll give you back your tools and i was like okay thank you and i immediately went back to like where they had all the jurors sitting like before they called our names and i texted jess was the first person i texted i was like you will not believe how dumb i am i just walked into jury duty with surgical tools into the courthouse (laughs) in my bag i was such an idiot and i didn't get i 
they still kept me like for a long time like I almost got selected you were there almost the entire day I almost got selected and then they finally sent me home and I texted Jess after and I was like do you think it's because I walked into a government building with autopsy tools they're like she has such bad judgment we can't have her here (laughs) this is an an immediate mark against her (laughs) security guard called the judge and was like you can't take this girl she's insane (laughs) Hey, just give you a heads up about Jer 11. She is an idiot. <laughs> Send her home. So, yeah, note to everybody check your bags before going to jury duty, <laughs> especially if you work in forensics. You texted me that, and I was like, this is the most Alice thing ever, and I love her. <laughs> <laughs> And but the they were really nice about it. Like I was so lucky. They were so understanding. Right? They could have been complete could, dicks about it and not giving you the back. I could have been arrested. Back. I don't. <laughs> okay, it was maybe not arrested. But, like, For real. I could have been detained. Like I could have gotten in so much trouble. And I was talking to the guy when I picked up my tools, and I think I told him about the podcast. So, sir, if you are listening, <laughs> thank you so much for not detaining me and for giving me my tools back which now live at the office i do not take them home (laughs) i had them in my bag just because i wanted to show my family because i told them about the cool tools that we got and they were like oh we want to see so like i took them home to show everybody and then i just forgot they were in my bag i keep mine i keep mine in a bag in my car nice (laughs) hope your car doesn't get searched one day and they're like why does she have (laughs) surgical tools in her car (laughs) Please going to be like, ma'am, can you step out of the vehicle? You're going to text me. You're like, you won't believe what just happened at my traffic stop. I found my autopsy tool. <laughs> so anyway, that's all I was thinking about during this episode was like, man, this could have been me if I didn't walk in to a government building with weapons slash autopsy tools. Now, wait, another question before we get back to the episode. If you did get selected, would you be thrilled to actually sit on jury in a case, or would you be annoyed as heck that you now have jury duty? See, that's a tough one. I don't know. This, uh, I don't want to get into the, the specifics of the case because I don't want to get in trouble. I don't know where it stands right now. But it was a violent crime. And it was very much a bummer, as most violent crimes are. And so I wasn't super looking forward to, like sitting there and having to hear like tragic victim statements so i was like "Mm, maybe it's maybe i'm okay Mm -hmm. not sitting in on this one but part of me is kind of curious what it's like being on that side of it you know what about you would you want well the one time i did get jerry duty i thankfully didn't have to go i was dismissed that night before when you have to call in but my dad recently had to go like a few months ago he got some and then he had to go to like our county's um courthouse and he learned about the case. He was there all day. He didn't get picked at the end, but he was telling me about the case. And I was like, oh, like, I, I can see, like, why you would be helpful. And I think that would be super cool to, like, sit on, like, a, sit on a case and, like, contribute in a way and, like, do your civic duty. I think me personally, I would really only want to, yeah. like, actually be on, be on in a jury for a high profile homicide case. I think that that would be so cool to, like, look at all the evidence and, like, help make mm-hmm. that decision. But other than that, if it was, like, a petty crime, like a car theft, I'd be like, why am I here? I'm I'm useless. Yeah, I thought about how it would be interesting on that side, too. But it would stress me out being in Jordan's position, like, in the show. She's the only one. Right. Like, like what if I was the only one who had 
Like, if I was saying not guilty and everybody else thought he was guilty, I'm like, well, shit. Now I'm the one juror who everybody's going to try to convince. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, or I have to try to convince other people of my point or we're going to be sitting here forever. Yeah, I think I would be really stressed about that. Yeah. But I would, yeah, like, certain instances, I would be, like, fascinated with the evidence and, like, different opinions and what they're presenting. And, yeah, I think it would have been really cool. Like, we were sitting, so it was, like, the last, they were, like, getting down to, like, the last group of us and the group was getting smaller and smaller we were like sitting there waiting to get called back and asked questions and we were just we were all just chatting and someone had said they had had jury duty before because we were all like oh i hope we don't get picked like i just want to go home and one person was like oh well like i think it's kind of interesting like i've gotten picked before and like it's kind of interesting getting to like do your civic duty and i was like i guess that's true like maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing if i got picked and then they came in and dismissed us. I was like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> I know. I think a lot of people are in our office that work, like the investigators and everyone, they always say like, oh, I want to do jury duty. I want to be on that side of it. But then I feel like you're actually there and you're like, I don't want to do this. It's, I like the idea yeah. of it. Yeah. I feel like part of the reason I didn't get picked is because of my job, because they ask you what you do. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they, I didn't, they, that's why I didn't get picked for the count, because I, you live so you work for a different county than what you live yeah, in, I live but in I di- live in the county that we work for. And they're like, never mind. So I would have, like, I have access to everything if it was, if it involved a death, I have access to all of those records. Right. And yeah, and sometimes we do work with neighboring counties. So like, there's a chance I would know somebody that worked in our right. county, in the county that I live in. And what was I saying? Oh yeah, they didn't, I didn't even make it to like the room where they pull you aside and ask you questions one-on-one. Like they were pulling people into the different room. Um, but like when you first get there, you had to fill out a form with like what jobs you've had. And so my first, my current job, forensic autopsy tech, as you all know. And then my previous job before that was like a molecular biologist in another lab. And I'm like, I feel like they might not want me. <laughs> like, <laughs> Just a hunch. They might not want me. And I, they even ask, like they ask like yes or no questions. Like, do you think you might know somebody who's involved in this case? And do any of these names sound familiar? Like, when they brought us all into a room together, they asked us to, like, raise our number. Like, they gave us each a number. Like, we were doing, um, what's it called? Like, an auction. <laughs> you know, and, like, TV, when you see auctions, we each had, like, a little <laughs> number. It was just like that. And they called us into the courtroom, and they had the defendant and the prosecutor and the defendant's lawyer and uh, anybody else that was involved in the case, the judge. And they had a list of names of people involved in the investigation, and they read the names, and they introduced themselves to us and they're like if you recognize any of us like raise your raise your number was one of the questions and I can't remember if I I recognized one of the detectives names that was working on the case but anyway yeah they asked like a bunch of questions like that and you just raise your number and from there they can like thin the crowd they're like all right get out <laughs> if you know anybody in this room I didn't know they did that I've never I've never gotten that far in life yeah that's a, that was I got to that point and then they separated us like they split us in half and like half of us got to go to lunch the other half stayed for questioning, and then the other group went to lunch, and then we stayed and did our questioning. But I didn't even get to the second round of questioning. They just they sent me back in at, like, 2 o'clock. They're like, all right, get out of here. So anyway, after my long rant about my brief, not really jury duty stint, we cut to Macy talking to Officer Logan's parents, saying that he wants to exhume their son's body. He says he believes there is some lingering evidence that could help close the case. The father says he doesn't want his son exhumed after all these years, and the mother asks if there's a chance that their son's killer could be acquitted. Macy says he doesn't know, and he wouldn't ask if he didn't think it was important. 
Officer Logan's mother ends up signing the paperwork to allow the exhumation of her son's body and asks Macy not to let their son's killer go free. Back at the jury deliberation, the other juries are finding it hard to believe that there was a third person at the scene who just so happened to be there and also just so happened to also want the officer dead, also have a gun, and just get lucky and be able to frame someone else for the crime. To which another juror responds that he'd like to have a gun right now while looking at Jordan. Calm down, dude. That's, like, insanely aggressive. Like, (laughs) you're... That's... That's crazier than walking into a government building with autopsy tools. This juror is told that if he talks like that again, they will send a note to the judge asking for his removal. The juror, who is named Mr. Webb, says he is just standing up to this, quote, lunatic, meaning Jordan. They decide to have another vote, and most of the jurors stay with their stance that the defendant is guilty, except for two. There are two other jurors who decide to say not guilty after listening to Jordan discuss the abnormalities of the autopsy findings. Jordan is a third not guilty in the room. Back in the morgue, they have exhumed Officer Logan's body. That's quick. Like, I'm trying to think of the time, like, we keep cutting back to Jordan in the jury room and she's wearing the same outfit, so it's like one day. There's no way it would be that quick, right? No, not at all. You have to first coordinate with the funeral home who, like, processed everything and then the burial, like, cemetery that they worked with. And then the family then has to get all of this paperwork signed, payment paid to the funeral home. Right, because it's expensive. And then from there, after all the paperwork signed, the funeral home then has to actually submit it to the state, I think, or somebody to get it approved so they can dig up the body. But then you also have to schedule it on a day that... Like, the forecast has to be, like, sunny. It has to be sunny and dry for at least three days, so conditions have to be perfect in order for them to dig because they have to dig in dry weather. Obviously, not when it's pouring rain. Right, and you're just digging up muck. So you have to look at the weather. You have to look at the month that it's in. Like, if the ground's too cold, it's going to be harder to dig. Does this sound like a red flag? This? Mm, I think is a red flag. All right. Impromptu red flag for how quickly they just exhumed his body. I'm just picturing Dr. Macy out there with a shovel. Like, he's the one (laughs) doing it. He's like, I'm going to do it on my own. So they say the body is very well preserved. It looked like he might have been embalmed, which does preserve the body for an extended period of time. So embalmers will replace the blood in the veins with formalin or formaldehyde or embalming fluid, and they inject this into the body's main arteries. The cavity fluid is removed with a long needle called a trocar and replaced with preservative. The goal here is to make sure the individual looks good for the funeral, which can take place a week or so after they initially pass away. So back at the morgue, they are also analyzing the wound on the chest. One doctor in the room asks Macy if the level of preservation is normal after 10 years buried. Macy says he was buried at the top of a slope and moisture drained away, which is most likely true. Macy observes that the chest wound has red-rimmed abrasions at 9 o'clock, and the wound on the back has them at 3 o'clock. This means that the shooter was further away than everybody thought. The original copy of the autopsy report stated that the bullet path started with an entrance wound through the chest, ripping through the intercostals, perforating the upper lobe of the lung, and then exiting out the back. But from what they can see on this examination, it didn't hit a single bone. Macy says with bone fracture, you can determine the direction of the bullet. All he has are muscle tears, which tell him nothing. And this 
maybe a red flag again. Macy's just getting all the red flags. Usually it's Jordan getting the red flags, but Dr. Macy today. So we've seen a lot of gunshot victims, and most of the time, like, if the bullet doesn't even hit bone, we can still determine directionality of the projectile through the body, especially if there's an exit. And that's why we use bullet probes, which kind of look like knitting needles, and you can just, like... Like you probe through the bullet. I think I actually bought knitting needles for our morgue. Yeah. Instead of regular bullet probes because of the blunt end. Yeah. They don't tear the skin as much. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you you stick the probe through what you think is the entrance and try to find the exit from there. Like follow the path of the bullet. So Macy goes over the scene report and finds that a detective Al Morris was the first to arrive at the scene, but he didn't testify at either trial, which is odd. Later on, the prosecutor comes to Macy's office, clearly upset. She said Officer Logan's parents came to her office to ask her what was going on with their son's exhumation, and she had no idea what they were talking about. Macy says he doesn't have to send her a memo every time he makes a decision. They're getting really tiffy with their romantic life. Macy confronts her about not mentioning the sound card that had been missing from the footage that was in her possession when it was lost. He also asks why she never called Detective Morris to testify at either trial. She claims that there's no conspiracy theory and that he can dig up all the bodies he wants, but that he would just come to the same conclusion that she did. The prosecutor says that Jordan violated her oath as a juror by asking for Macy's help, but Macy points out that Jordan refused to discuss the case with him and he was doing this on his own. Macy gets in touch with the detective that they work with, who says that it's odd that the first detective to arrive on the scene wasn't called to testify. But he says it's not unheard of, and that it's up to the DA who gets called as a witness, and that he knew a lot of cops who froze up on the stand and were just bad witnesses. Macy tells the detective that this officer was at the scene for a full seven minutes before anybody else arrived. This detective admits that that is odd, but still doesn't think that it's anything to be concerned about. Macy says he wants him to ask Detective Morris why he didn't testify. Back in the jury deliberation, one jury is pointing out the fact that Ainsworth was found at a bus station trying to flee after the incident, indicating that he must have felt guilty. But someone else says that that could have just been him running out of fear. Someone comes to drop off another folder of evidence that Jordan wants to see. It's photographs of Ainsworth's clothes that he was wearing the night of the murder. Jordan notices that most of the blood spatter is on the left side, which is consistent with him lying unconscious on his right side while somebody else shot Officer Logan, causing the blood to spray and spatter on Ainsworth's exposed left side. The juror asked if it was possible for Ainsworth to have been standing at an angle in front of Logan with a gun. Jordan says that it could be possible, but then the bullet path wouldn't have gone straight through like the evidence shows. She says that the evidence is leaning towards the defendant's story of what happened. Then there's a knock at the door and a bailiff enters and asks juror number 12, which is Jordan, to go to the judge's chambers because they have requested to speak with her. The rest of the jurors are told not to discuss the case until Jordan returns. In the judge's chambers, the prosecutor, Macy, and the judge are waiting for her, and the judge states that she's been accused of violating the oath she took as a juror and that she should take this accusation very seriously. The prosecutor goes on to explain that the day after Jordan and the jurors requested the autopsy report, Macy had Officer Logan's body exhumed, and that she, yeah, that's too quick to have a body exhumed. Yeah, way too quick. <laughs> the day after? No. 
and that she thinks Jordan is the one that asked him to look into it. Jordan denies this. Okay, also, this prosecutor is the one who's been giving Macy information about the case. They were, like, talking over. Right? She's like, I think Jordan's the one who's been telling him all about the case. And I'm like, no, it's you. You're talking about it over wine with him. Like, girl, get your shit together. Jordan is locked in a room with these crazy people who want to shoot her. And you're like... (laughs) You're having dinner with the chief medical examiner, and then you're like, where is he getting this information? It's like, from you! Stop playing dumb. It's not cute. Stop. So Jordan denies this, and Macy says that he did ask Jordan about the case, but that she was the one who refused to discuss it with him. He said he read the autopsy report on his own and found things that he thought required further scrutiny. He said he ended up finding more questions, and the judge tells the prosecutor in order to give her what she wants, which is Jordan off the jury, he'd have to call the chief medical examiner a liar, and absent of any proof of that, he doesn't want to do it. Jordan says the only other people she has discussed the case with are the other jurors. The defense attorney is still comfortable with Jordan on the case, and the judge tells the prosecutor that he won't make any changes in the jury, but he does agree to sequester the jurors until the trial is over. Jordan has to tell the other jurors this, and they are obviously upset. Jordan says that she just wants all these anomalies explained. We cut to a bar where the detective that Macy talked to earlier is meeting with Detective Morrison, the detective who was first to arrive at the crime scene, but was for some reason never called to testify. Morrison says that he heard that they dug Officer Logan up and wants to know what's up. The first detective asks why he never testified in either of the two previous trials for this case, and Morrison says that the first trial he was on was an extradition pickup in Utah, and for the second, he was having shoulder surgery. He says he didn't want to testify because he left something out of his report. He admits that he found 20 grand in Officer Logan's trunk and says that he knew that he had a gambling problem. Morrison says that he gave the money to his father and never told the prosecutor because he didn't think it had anything to do with the murder. I can't believe that. I saw all of this money in the trunk, but there's no way it's connected to this murder. That's like one of the main reasons people kill each other is over money. And he's like, (laughs) no, it's 20 grand? No. It can't be this easy. (laughs) It can't be that. The detective later tells Macy that the only reason that Morrison didn't testify is because of a scheduling conflict, conveniently leaving out the details about the money. As they're talking about this, Officer Logan's father comes into the office clearly upset. He confronts Macy about exhuming his son's body and leading them to believe it was something the DA wanted for the case, even though that wasn't true. Macy admits that he read the autopsy report on his own and believed the original autopsy was unprofessional and he wanted to look at Officer Logan's body himself. The father says that if the person who killed his son gets let go, that Macy should watch his back. He then storms out of the office. A lot of medical examiners getting threatened in this episode. Jordan got threatened. Which never happens in real life. I mean, that I know of. At least that I know of. I'm going to start asking. We do get some crazy, crazy family members here and there. But from what I can remember, I don't think anyone has actually threatened our office. Knock on wood, I've never been threatened. So after he leaves, Maisie tells the detective that he's going to review the tape from the dashboard cam. And also that he's starting to believe that Ainsworth is innocent. Back to the jurors, they're telling the judge that after two days, they believe they are deadlocked. They tell the judge that the last vote was 9-3, to with 9 saying guilty and 3 saying not guilty. One juror gets agitated and says that they will never reach a verdict because this crazy lady, and then he points to Jordan, will never convince him to vote not guilty. 
Everyone's attacking Jordan. This is the Mr. Webb guy who threatened to shoot her. So he's just agitated the whole time. Stop attacking Jordan. She's doing her civic duty. So she says that there's just so much insufficient information in this case and that they can't be expected to reach a logical conclusion. The judge isn't buying it, and he also says that there is no way they will declare a mistrial after only two days. He tells the jurors to return to the jury room and only return when they each reach a verdict. Back at the morgue, Macy and the other tech are trying to enhance the tape of the dashboard footage. The detective tells Macy about Officer Logan's gambling problem and the money that Morrison said he found in the squad car. As they enhance the video, the detective notices a shadow on the back of Ainsworth that they couldn't see before. They take a closer look and it looks like it could be a gun tucked in the back of his jeans. Macy brings a still shot of the alleged gun tucked in Ainsworth pants to the prosecutor. Macy asks if she'll tell the judge and says that if it were exculpatory, he could halt deliberations, but he wouldn't for this. I'm just annoyed at this prosecutor because, like, Macy's giving her, like, intel. And she's the one who accused Jordan of, like, <laughs> talking to the <laughs> to the chief medical examiner. Right. I mean, I guess it's not illegal for the DA to talk to the chief medical examiner. It would be breaking her oath as a juror to talk to anybody about the case. But <laughs> she was just like, I don't know where Macy's getting all this information. And she's having, like, secret meetings with him the whole episode. It's like, come on, girl. <laughs> be honest girl it's you girl you are the problem (laughs) look in the mirror for anyone who doesn't know exculpatory means evidence that would serve to clear the defendant of guilt and macy says that the da notes from 10 years ago say that they searched for the gun at the scene but the cops didn't have a copy of the search grid macy wants to find the gun to link it to the crime so he's out on a mission doing that and then back in the jury room More jurors are swaying towards the not guilty verdict, and now three are saying guilty and nine are saying not guilty. But the agitated juror who is attacking Jordan says that these people are just trying to change their vote to get out of the room, which everybody denies. And he also says that it's no use because he won't change his mind from the guilty verdict. Back at the Emmy's office, they created a map that shows where Ainsworth was living and the crime scene. They overlay the police search grid and find that they searched every area in between looking for the gun. They then overlay the search grid provided by the guy from the DA's office, and they find an area that was missed on both searches, an area that has a creek and a pond. They head to the creek, and they're doubtful that they'll find anything, considering this was from 1994, and I don't know what year this is, but I feel like it's like 10 or so years after. Yeah, I think it's 2004. I think it's 10 years later. The detective thinks that if anyone would have found anything, they would have turned it in, and that the gun probably sank in the mud. He goes into the creek with a metal detector, and he finds the gun almost immediately. I love it. He was like, oh, man, we're not going to find anything. And then he walks like two feet in the mud, and he finds it. He's like, here's a a knife. Here's this. Here's this. Oh, and a gun. (laughs) He found like a belt buckle. And he's like, oh, and by the way, I found the gun. Like, (laughs) so casual. So they take this gun back to the office and they do some ballistics testing. They have like their own gun range, I guess, in their like crime lab. And they do like a test fire of the gun that they found. And they look at the striations of the bullet under a comparison microscope, which I give a green flag to because this is very accurate to what actual ballistics experts do when they're matching bullets under and they're trying to like match a gun and a bullet together. I think comparison microscopes are so cool. 
I think they're they are. fascinating. Like you just look microscopically at two different things and line them up so they match. It's so cool. This allows them to look at the bullet that killed Officer Logan and the bullet that was just fired from this gun. Uh, so it's side by side on the screen and they see on the microscopic level that the striations are completely different. So this wasn't the gun that killed Officer Logan. They had already confirmed that this was Ainsworth's gun by matching the serial number, but this gun did not fire the fatal shot. Back in jury deliberation, Jordan is explaining that she doesn't necessarily think that Ainsworth is innocent, but she doesn't feel that she can say with beyond a reasonable doubt that he is guilty. So she's sticking to her vote of not guilty. When she phrases it that way, it convinces another juror to change their vote from guilty to not guilty, and then another juror says that he can't get past the videotape, and Jordan points out that that video just places two men at the scene, but it doesn't show who actually shot the officer. So this convinces this juror to switch his vote. So that leaves one juror still voting guilty, and it's the same agitated guy from before. He says that Ainsworth is a scum, an addict, a loser, and he can just tell by looking at this guy that he's a bad guy. Jordan says that they aren't supposed to vote based on a person's character. They're supposed to vote based on evidence presented to them. And the juror tells Jordan that he was a cop for almost 20 years, and he dealt with people like Ainsworth every day. Jordan perks up at this, and she's like, almost 20? Like, what happened? You get your full pension at 20. Why didn't you stick around? And then she makes some assumptions and guesses and says that maybe he had one too many brutality complaints or that he lied on his reports to make sure the scum got locked up. And then she says that he just liked playing God. So back at the ME's office, Macy shows the prosecutor that the bullet from Ainsworth's gun didn't match the bullet that killed Officer Logan. She says that she will still show the judge because she's hoping for a mistrial so that she can start over with a new jury. When she makes the call, she's told that the jury has already reached a verdict. The tech comes in and says that they were able to enhance the dashboard footage even further and found something. At the courthouse, the foreman for the jury announces that they found the defendant not guilty and the courtroom erupts in anger. The detective that Macy had been working with comes in and whispers something to the prosecutor. They both leave with Officer Logan's parents as well. They go into an office where Macy's waiting, and Macy explains that they were able to enhance the footage further, and they saw that a third car was at the scene. They were able to get the license plate number, and it was a match for Officer Logan's father. <gasps> dun, dun, dun! The mother is very confused, and the father's not saying anything right now. Macy goes on to tell them what he thinks happened. They think that Officer Logan was stealing from his father's business for his gambling addiction, and that he wouldn't admit that he had a problem. The father decided to follow his son to see what he was doing with this money. Officer Logan stopped Ainsworth for a broken taillight, and when the two men started fighting, the father followed them. Officer Logan turned around and saw his father at the top of the incline where he shot his son. The father says that he spent his whole life building up his business and that there wasn't anything he could do to make his son stop stealing from him. The prosecutor then advises that he speak with an attorney before he says anything else. Jordan returns to work when the prosecutor comes in and thanks her for doing the right thing. 
Jordan says that she just wanted to talk the case through and thought that that's what jurors should do. Which, like, she's not wrong. She, yeah, she's absolutely right. They should talk it through and not just go with their gut instinct. They have to look at all the evidence like they did. And that is how this episode ends. She even convinced the guy who threatened to shoot her <laughs> to do mm-hmm. not guilty verdict. Which took a lot. Yeah. We were intrigued with the fact that the case in the show had been on trial three times, and it made us think of a true event where the main suspect was also brought to trial three times. So before we do get into this, we just want to give a trigger warning. This case does involve children and also involves sexual assault, so if that's something you're not comfortable listening to, we will see you next week. So this is the tragic case of the Eastburn family murders. Katie Eastburn was a military wife. Her husband, Gary, was frequently away. In May of 1985, he was attending Air Force Captain and Training School in Alabama. They lived in North Carolina, I believe. Gary was soon going to be stationed in Germany, and the Eastburn family was preparing for the upcoming move. Unfortunately, this would mean they would have to leave their family dog, Dixie, behind as there were strict regulations on the base that said they couldn't bring pets. Katie placed a classified ad in the local paper, hoping to find a family that would take Dixie into a loving home. On May 7, 1985, Army Staff Sergeant Timothy Hennis answered the ad. He and his wife, Angela, loved dogs, but their current dog was having issues with their newborn child. Their current dog wasn't going to be a good fit in their home with a baby, so they were looking for another dog that they could get that would be used to having children around. I think they were getting rid of their current dog and wanted another dog that would be good with children. And this seemed like Dixie was a perfect fit. So Tim went to pick up Dixie from the Eastburn home that day. He used the bathroom before leaving, and then he thanked Katie and was on his way out. On Sunday, May 12th, the Eastburn's neighbor, Army Sergeant Bob C. Felt, had just come home and his wife told him that she was worried because she had noticed that the papers were piling up on the Eastburn's doorstep. The family car was still in the driveway and the baby stroller was parked in its usual place at their back door. Bob also realized that he hadn't seen the Eastburns in about three days. He decided to take a look, so he stepped up to the Eastburns front door and heard the cries of an infant inside. He tried knocking and ringing the doorbell, but didn't get an answer. He went back home and called Julie Serzinak. I'm definitely butchering that name, I apologize. The Eastburn's babysitter, who came right over. Julie peeked into the window and saw baby Jana standing alone in her crib with her arms outstretched. Julie began looking for a way in to help the baby, but Bob convinced her that the best thing to do was to wait for police to arrive. Officer William Toman was the first to arrive at the scene. He forced open a window and retrieved Jana and some diapers, and he gave the baby to Bob. He said there was a horrible smell coming from inside the home. He went back inside to investigate and immediately discovered the dead bodies of Katie and her three-year-old daughter, Erin. He called for backup, and a full-scale search of the home later found the body of five-year-old Kara Eastburn lying in her bed with her covers pulled up. During the investigation, a man named Patrick Cohn reported that he had seen a man leaving the residence three nights ago, the same night of the murders. According to Patrick's account, he saw a white Chevette parked on the road around 3.30 a.m. when he was leaving his girlfriend's house. He then saw a white man walking down the Eastburn's driveway, and he walked right by him. The man said, I'm getting an early start to the morning, and then drove off in the Chevette. Patrick described the man as 6'4", with blonde hair that peeked out from under a black toboggan knit hat, and he said he was wearing a black members-only jacket over a white shirt and blue jeans. Three days after the murders, police broadcast over television and radio a request for the man who had answered Katie's classified ad about her dog, Dixie, to contact the police. 
The plea was also accompanied by a sketch created from Patrick Cohn's description of the man that he had seen that night. Timothy Hennis saw this on the evening news and was shocked at the similarities between the sketch and himself. He took his wife and their daughter and drove to the police station in his white Chevette and offered to assist in any way possible with the investigation. He willingly answered all the questions asked of him without aid of an attorney, and he never requested one. DNA testing was still a few years away, but police did request hair, blood, and semen samples because it was discovered that Katie was raped shortly before her death. Tim and his wife returned home believing that they had done all that they could to help the investigation, but later that evening, investigators arrived at their home with a warrant for Tim's arrest. Tim Hennis hired the high-profile law firm Beaver, Holt, Richardson, Sternlich, Burge, and Glazier, PA. The firm hired private investigator Bob Nelligar. Nelligar interviewed the Eastburn's babysitter, Julie. She told him that the family had recently started getting harassing phone calls, some of the sexual nature. She also admitted that she was fascinated with the case of Je Dr. Jeffrey McDonald. Say, I think we did this case. Like, I think we did this true crime. It's the one where the family has all the different blood types and you can like trace his footprints. So she said she was fascinated with that case, saying that she believed he was innocent and that she had been sending him mail while he was in prison for the murders of his family. I think they had like mail exchanges. I think he answered. She also told Nelligar that her stepbrother strongly resembled Tim Hennis, and she even showed photos to prove it. And she also said she had been assisting vice squads in setting up busts of local drug dealers. She thought that one time she had been followed to the Eastburn home by an angry drug dealer, but she was unable to identify the man. Nelligar also set up a reenactment of the scene described by Patrick Cohn, and the Patrick stand-in in this reenactment was unable to see the Tim actor in the distance as the area was too poorly lit at 3.30 a.m. During the reenactment, a man named David Hill, who was a neighbor from across the street, approached and told them that the night of the murder, he saw a van out in front of the Eastburn home. He claimed to have spoken to the white man in the van who had a crew cut. He said he saw the same exact van for sale a few days later in a Winn-Dixie parking lot. Patrick Cohn later admitted that he thought he was mistaken about Tim Hennis being the killer. Nelligar also found that the hair and fingerprints found at the scene did not match Hennis or any known friend or family member of the Eastburn family. There was also a size 9 shoe print uncovered by police at the scene, but Tim wore a size 13. Nelligar also spoke to other neighbors, Chuck and Sherry Ratke, who said that they were out at the same time as Patrick Cohn. Why is everybody out at 3.30 in the morning? Right? I am asleep at that time. Why are these people so active? They said they were out at that time and they didn't see a white Chevette. And they also said they didn't see Patrick that morning. However, they said a few days later that they did see a blonde man with a crew cut in a members-only jacket carrying a black garbage bag on the same night that the Eastburns were murdered. On July 4th, 1986, after 12 hours of deliberation, the jury found Tim Hennis guilty on one count of first-degree rape and three counts of first-degree murder. Tim Hennis was sentenced to death three times. However, days after this, Tim received a postcard from someone who called themselves Mr. X, and it read, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. His attorney thought it was a hoax, but kept it for their records anyway. The prosecutor also received a postcard from this Mr. X, but downplayed it even when it was requested for discovery motions. 
After more than two years on death row, Tim's conviction was overturned, and he was set for a retrial that began February 27, 1989. This time, the prosecutor found a new witness, Elisa Peabody, who was a neighbor that had previously stated she hadn't seen anyone the night of the murders, but now was claiming she saw Tim leaving the scene. But Tim's attorneys received the help of another private investigator named T.V. O'Malley, and were able to locate the mysterious walker that Chuck and Sherry Radke had seen the night of the murders. A man named John Rapach entered the courtroom, and he was nearly identical to Tim. He was also 6'4", he also wore a black members-only jacket, and a black toboggan hat, and a white t-shirt, and dark corduroy pants. Tim was acquitted on all counts during this second trial in 1989. But this wasn't the end. In 2007, Army officials reopened the case after experts claimed that they had DNA that linked Tim to the 22-year-old murder case. By this time, Tim was 49 and retired from the military, but he was forcefully reactivated to stand trial under military jurisdiction because double jeopardy prevented the state officials from retrying Tim, even with the discovery of new evidence. So double jeopardy just means you can't be tried for the same crime once your trial is already over. So like he was tried a second time originally because he got a mistrial, but because the trial had already completed, um, he couldn't be tried again for it, even if they do find new evidence. But federal government is considered a sovereign authority into itself and therefore is separate from the powers of the states. So because it was the military jurisdiction, he was able to be tried under like the military jurisdiction and not the state jurisdiction. Tim initially stuck with his original story, but later claimed that he had consensual sex with Katie Eastburn the night of the murder. There was also a condom found at the scene, and I don't believe, I think that was the DNA that they matched with him. I can't remember. Um, and I, of course, forgot to write it down, but there was a condom found at the scene. Tim initially stuck to his original story, but he later claimed that he had consensual sex with Katie Eastburn the night of the murder. He did not disclose this originally because he was afraid and he didn't want to add to anyone's grief. The military jury rejected these claims and found him guilty of three counts of premeditated murder on April 9, 2010. In 2020, the U.S. Court Military Appeals ruled to uphold the conviction and the death sentence of Timothy Hennis. That same year, Tim's attorneys filed a writ for certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court, but it was denied in January 2021. So a writ for certiorari, which I might be pronouncing wrong, states that the petition is granted and names the specific questions the court will consider when hearing a case, but it was denied in January 2021, like I just said. So we got this information from a The Crime Wire article titled The Eastburn Family Murders and the Trial of Sergeant Timothy Hennis by Kim Bryan, and we will link it in our show notes if you want to learn more. That is, I know I say this every week, but that is an insane story and case. I just, it's like all the different, like all the different evidence and like eyewitness accounts not lining up and... Mm -hmm. The fact that there were, like, two men that looked exactly like Tim because Julie's stepbrother looked just like Tim, and then they found this other guy that looked just like Tim. Like, how can they be sure that the person they saw was Tim? And that's why, like, eyewitness statements, like, don't really hold up in court anymore because people, they forget, they think they see one thing, but they don't really see it, and then their mind makes up a story, kind of into like fitting what they think they saw right and i think that's what the defense was trying to do the second trial he had where he was acquitted 
with bringing in John Rapash. I might be saying his name wrong too. Like they weren't accusing John of doing the murders. They were just saying like, look, this guy looks just like Tim. Like they were planting the seed of doubt. They were saying like, we're not saying he didn't do it, but like, how can you be sure just based off of eyewitness? Yeah. Cause like these two men look so similar, especially from a distance at three thirty AM. How can you be sure? But then they found the DNA evidence and they found, there was another part that I was reading. They found the condom originally at like in 1985 when they were investigating the murder and they thought that meant she must have had consensual sex with someone because there was a condom and i'm like rapists can use condoms but they they said they're like rapists don't use condoms and i'm like i what like that's do you know that did you do a survey and i guess it wasn't i mean right (laughs) i don't i want to know how they came to that how did you come to that conclusion that rapists don't use condoms i mean they might they i guess in most cases they don't but like you can't just rule that as fact yeah so i think especially because dna wasn't really an option back in then they did they thought maybe it was a condom from some consensual encounter yeah and i think maybe that's what the dna that linked tim to it originally but they again they can't prove whether it was consensual or rape and yeah and for everyone thinking like DNA wasn't around? No, DNA was not around in the 80s. It, like, became a thing closer to the 90s and 2000s. OJ. OJ was, like, the first big case. The OJ Simpson case was where they used DNA. Yeah. Like, DNA was not an option back in the 80s. They, like, forensics is fairly new and is still, like, basically a baby. (laughs) (laughs) It's a baby. (laughs) No, but for real, in terms of, like, scientific practices... Uh, like dna is very new like it's been around since the 90s which i mean so have i (laughs) it's like 30 years old it's yeah that is so young for a science when they found the condom they're like well must have been consensual i'm like no you don't know that (laughs) you don't know that well to end this episode we tallied a total of two green flags and two red flags, so in our opinion, this episode of Crossing Jordan kind of ties in terms of forensic accuracy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy this podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram and feel free to DM us anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. 